Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. All right, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Knife. Um, Today we are going to meet with our first plastic surgeon on the podcast. Uh, he's a craniofacial expert and actually does pediatric craniofacial, Dr. Fong Nguyen uh, from uh, University of Pennsylvania and works at CHOP Hospital. Uh, Dr. Nguyen, thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Knife. Thanks for having me. Uh, Dr. Nguyen, can you just tell us a little bit about um, how you got to where you are? I know you started like uh, many of us uh, as a general surgery residents and now you're um, doing reconstructive surgery on kids. How, can you tell us where you trained and how you got there? Yeah, sure. Um, so I probably took the, the, the longest way you probably could to get around to uh, doing what I do now. But uh, essentially, uh, after medical school, um, I did general surgery, and uh, that was at NYU. And uh, part of that, it was you know, it's a five-year program, but the majority of the residents did uh, two years of research. Um, so I started residency in uh, 2004 uh, at Bellevue Hospital and NYU. And uh, along the way there, originally my intention was to be a pediatric uh, general surgeon. Um, but uh, along the way, I uh, had a rotation on a, on a plastic surgery rotation at Bellevue and met uh, one of my mentors and now colleagues and friends, uh, um, a gentleman named uh, Jamie Levine, who's just a, a wonderful person. And basically, we kind of hit it off. And, you know, I always liked him as a person, and but I didn't know really a whole lot about plastic surgery. Um, and... You know, fast forward to a uh, third year of residency, I was looking for a lab to work in, and uh, I'd always had a pediatric, uh, I guess, a pediatric interest. And so he actually told me about his lab, and so I ended up going into uh, spending two years in that lab with um, uh, Jamie as well as Steve Warren and Pierce today, who are uh, other plastic surgeons in, uh, at NYU. And basically, it just opened up uh, my understanding and kind of the, the entire uh, presence of, of plastic surgery was uh, really unfolded before me. I happened to be pretty lucky because uh, NYU has a very strong plastic surgery program, and the uh, chairman at the time, uh, by the name of Joseph McCarthy, is uh, one of uh, you know the, the biggest leaders in plastic surgery. He just recently retired. But really being in, in that presence uh, kind of opened up my eyes, and you know that one thing led to another. So... Uh, after the two years of uh, basic science research, I uh, went back to general surgery, applied to a plastic surgery uh, fellowship, or essentially a secondary uh, residency. So I ended up going to UCLA, uh, matching there, um, and uh, learning plastic surgery for uh, three years. And while there, there was a uh, another uh, craniofacial surgeon by the name of uh, Henry Kawamoto, who is uh, a contemporary of, uh, of Joe McCarthy, and who's also one of the big greats, um, who significantly influenced kind of, uh, you know, my mentality and, and also exposure to, uh, to cases. And I thought what they were doing was incredible. And I've always wanted to work with kids and craniofacial surgery really lends itself to, uh, working with kids. So, uh, I trained with him and I was very fortunate to catch him before he retired. Um, and from there, uh, applied to a craniofacial fellowship, um, and ended up matching at uh, the hospital for six children in uh, Toronto in Canada and uh, spent a year there uh, working with Chris Forrest and John Phillips who are 
uh, both extraordinary uh, surgeons. And from there, basically looked for a job and uh, was fortunate enough to, um, to start working at the University of Pennsylvania in Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Wow, that is great. Uh, a few kind of uh, technical questions about the, the training route you took. Um, are there currently, I know there's the integrated plastics uh, is becoming more and more popular. Uh, do you foresee that there will always be uh, spots open for general surgery residents that want to go into plastics after finishing general surgery? Yeah, yeah, I do. And, you know, I think we're living through a, a, a paradigm shift now because, you know, when historically it had been essentially 50% of the uh, programs uh, were available for independent spots and 50% were integrated spots. And it's kind of been relatively stable for about 20 years. But I think two things happened um, in the last five or six years. Uh, first one is that all the plastic surgery programs that were taking independent ca- uh, candidates went from two to, to, three, to three years. So you're looking at people who had done five years of gen surge with plus or minus two years of research and now doing three years on top of that. Uh, you know, 10 years is a long time to do anything. <laughs> um, so I think uh, so the pool of, uh, of, of candidates uh, decreased a little bit. Um, and the second thing is that, you know, uh, with generally speaking, you know, it's, it's fairly expensive to, uh, to fund a resident, as you can imagine. So uh, from a uh, RRC and from an ACGME standpoint, you know, uh, there's certainly a push towards um, getting residents trained over six years as opposed to 10 years. So I think the bad combination has essentially moved the paradigm a little bit towards um, more of a uh, more spots for the integrated spots. I know a lot of traditional stalwarts uh, that had taken historically independent spots had converted to integrated programs. Uh, now, having said that, I think there is still a lot of hope because there are a lot of very talented general surgery residents out there who just didn't have the exposure. Certainly, when I was coming through, I didn't know anything about plastic surgery. And if I wasn't kind of in the right place at the right time, um, I don't think I would have ended up in my career path. So uh, at our program in University of Pennsylvania, um, we definitely uh, continue to have a, a kind of a combined approach where we have uh, an integrated uh, residency program in addition to uh, uh, an independent spot as well. And just having that combination allows us to really attract uh, kind of the best people from, from both uh, avenues. Great. And uh, to be clear for our listeners out there, you can match into a plastic surgery fellowship out of, uh, I believe, orthopedics, uh, urology, um, general surgery. Is there any others? Is that, and is that true? Uh, ENT, ENT as well. That's ENT. true. So I would say 95% of uh, people in independent spots come from general surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do know a handful who uh, came from the other disciplines, ENT or uh, ortho or rarely urology. And it's it's a unique because they bring a very different background, right. um, and you can kind of see where the careers take them, where they can incorporate uh, both those things. Great, great. So I just wanted to, for our listeners out there, I know one of your uh, clinical expertise is is trauma and uh, specifically uh, pediatric trauma. Uh, I was just wondering what what is the most common uh, cause of of trauma in these pediatric patients that you're doing these reconstructions for? Well, you know, uh, well. For, for us, you know, a lot of the trauma, I, I do a lot of uh, facial trauma, um, and you know, we share that responsibility, I think, across the, the uh, you know, North America um, with maxillofacial surgeons or oral surgeons, uh, as well as ENT. And depending on your institution, 
uh, one of the three uh, of those disciplines will be taking care of the trauma or they'll be on a rotational basis. Uh, we also, as plastic surgeons, do uh, basically take care of pretty much all the uh, significant soft tissue trauma, and that's anywhere on the body from, uh, you know, extremities to uh, torso, et cetera. So it really is uh, operating over the body. Um, in my own practice, I probably see the most, uh, the most of what I see is, is facial trauma. And, uh, you know, a lot of that's uh, both bony uh, facial trauma uh, as well as um, complex cranial uh, trauma that we do in conjunction with neurosurgery as well as uh, soft tissue trauma. Wow. Wow. Um, and, and when you have one of these patients that comes in with, uh, you know, a complex injury from either a fall or a car accident, uh, what are your principles in, in addressing, you know, many times they'll have uh, many fractures and, and complex lacerations and tissue defects. Uh, you know, how, obviously the trauma team probably stabilizes them, but once that's sort of established, uh, how, how do you approach a patient like that? Oh, well, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's, I certainly uh, remember being uh, uh, a resident in general surgery dealing with a lot of polytrauma and complex uh, trauma. You know, as a, uh, from a general surgery perspective, you know, you've got to stick with your ABCs, even though there can be some uh, um, pretty impressive uh, facial trauma. You know, ultimately, at the end of the day, you have to stick to your principles of you know, your airway and circulation. Uh, but Essentially, what happens after that is then on your secondary survey, uh, that's when you start calling in uh, your respective consultants. So for for us, you know, there there isn't a lot of trauma that uh, that's emergent. Uh, there are certainly some indications, um, depending on uh, the bony fracture and the adjacent structures that they're uh, that they're uh, impinging upon. But for the most part, uh, you know, what we do as far as uh, uh, facial trauma uh, can can be uh, uh, postponed until all their more uh, significant uh, injuries are taken care of. Great. And uh, so once uh, their their primary injuries are, um, do you address the, the bony defects first or does it really matter on uh, kind of where it is and what it is? Or uh, how, how do you go about um, approaching that, that complex patient? Sure. I mean, the way I look at it, I think, is uh, so based so based on kind of where the injury is, you know, if you're talking about, uh, if, we, if we're talking about facial uh, bony trauma, um, essentially it's, it's helpful to divide it into facial thirds. So kind of the top third, which is orbits and, and cranial trauma, uh, the mid, middle third, which is mid-face, um, which is your forks and your uh, uh, VMCs, and your lower third, which is essentially um, uh, your mandible. So when you divide into those three, it kind of it helps to uh, uh, organize your your, your principles. Uh, the main thing, main principles are basically um, retaining alignment um, and restoring form and function. So uh, you know the face is predicated on the, uh, this concept of uh, 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 buttresses. So you have your horizontal buttresses and uh, vertical buttresses, which basically um, are areas of uh, bony um, thickness that uh, support. The, the height and the width of your face, basically what makes a face look like a face. And so when you're putting things back together, you really want to um, adhere to those, to those principles. And as far as timing goes, if, it's, if you're dealing with bone alone, for the most part, you want to do something within two weeks. Uh, the sooner the better, because by then you start forming uh, callus formation. And, uh, you know, with pediatric trauma, even sooner because kids uh, heal so quickly. 
Whereas in adults, for the most part, uh, bones take about 60, uh, six weeks or so uh, to really create uh, stability and, and bony healing, whereas a child maybe is really at four weeks. So all of that kind of goes into your uh, thinking as far as um, when to do something. Great. Um, one thing to cover, I think that would be helpful for all the general surgery residents out there is what, what facial fractures are surgical emergencies? That's a good, that's a, that's a good question. So there are a couple of things that come to my mind. So certainly any, uh, fractures in and of themselves uh, are not emergencies, but what they, uh, the anatomy that they're impinging upon potentially could be. So for instance, uh, one of the more common ones that we'll see is a, is an orbital floor fracture. Uh, so you'll see it in assaults or anyone who's basically any type of trauma, direct trauma towards the orbit. Uh, the orbital floor is the thinnest uh, part of the orbit, and that's going to be the uh, the path of least resistance. So the real indications to operate on that, um, one, is emergent if you have uh, any evidence of entrapment, and that's really based on physical exam. If a patient... Uh, uh, expresses, well, first of all, on exam, and you're looking at the extraocular movements, and uh, you're having them um, look in a superior gaze, and one eye is trapped in, at a fixed gaze. That's a, that's a worrisome finding. But also, uh, as a clinical pearl, uh, particularly in kids who may not be able to express their uh, uh, exactly what they're doing, you'll look for um, secondary signs like uh, nausea and vomiting, uh, extreme pain on moving those. Uh, uh, on extraocular movements. Uh, there's a phenomenon called a trapdoor effect, where essentially the orbital floor has a green stick fracture, it partially breaks, and uh, the inferior rectus muscle and periorbital fat get trapped in the maxillary sinus, and then the, the orbital floor comes back up. And uh, that's you see it more often in kids because their bones are a little more spongy. Hmm. That's, that's an emergency, I mean, by which I mean within six hours. Because the idea is if you have uh, ischemic muscle, uh, particularly inferior rectus, you can, create, um, you can create permanent scarring, which will ultimately result in uh, visual symptoms, sepulpia. So you really want to act on those pretty fast. It's one thing that uh, general surgery residents uh, encounter a lot, whether they're covering uh, plastics overnight and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a little slightly different than what we were talking about, but for a free flap, can you just uh, discuss the principles of, uh, you know, either arterial or venous monitoring postoperatively, uh, how to maximize the, the chances of a free flap and when to, to be concerned um, and, to, you know, to call your plastic surgery fellow in um, for a free flap? Sure. Uh before I guess I get into the, the nuances of the free flaps, I'll just go back to one of the, uh, you know, the thing with plastic surgery that's different from any other discipline is, you know, we don't really have um, an anatomic uh, area that, that we specialize in, in the sense that, you know, neurosurgeons work on brains and spine, general surgeons are mostly abdominal surgeons at this point, et cetera. It's, plastic surgery really works more, uh, the, tie, the, that, the thing that ties everything together is really a principle. Um, and Jim McCarthy would always say that plastic surgery was a problem-solving uh, discipline. So the principles, basically, we go through this uh, idea of a reconstructive ladder from simple to complex uh, about how to fix something. And to fix something uh, oftentimes requires whether it be filling a hole or getting coverage uh, of exposed critical structures. You know, as simple as on the bottom rungs, you have uh, letting things heal by secondary intention or putting things together by primary uh, repair 
to skin grafts to moving some local tissue around and going all the way up to free tissue transfer, which are uh, free flaps. So just to demystify what a free flap is, you know, free flaps are basically moving a piece of tissue from one part of the body, um, disconnecting it from its blood supply and putting it to another part of the body and reconnecting the blood supply. Uh, essentially, that's what it is. And it can be, um, free flaps uh, can be, uh, they can contain one of several uh, uh, components, including muscle, fascia, uh, and skin. And based on what they contain, that's essentially how you describe it. For instance, a, you know, a radioform free flap is a fascial cutaneous flap. Uh, latissimus flap is a muscle flap. Um, so that's how, when you're speaking about flaps, you kind of want to get the, the vernacular. Uh, that's how they're described. Now, as far as how to monitor it and what you might see, you know, for general surgery uh, residents covering, probably the most common free flaps that we do are breast reconstruction, which are uh, soft tissue-based flaps, you know, oftentimes uh, abdominal-based uh, flaps, um, and also lower extremity reconstruction. And you know, commonly, what you'll be asked to do as a, as a resident is monitor the flap. Um, so the flap, if it has a skin paddle, uh, has, gives you a direct way to actually look at it. And so from a clinical perspective, when you're looking at a flap, a healthy flap looks like the surrounding tissue. So it has tissue turgor, um, it has cap refill, uh, it has uh, a skin color that's, that's similar to the surrounding tissue. Uh, when you're in trouble, then you then you got to go down your algorithm. Is it an artery problem or is it a... Uh, vein problem. So when it's an artery or inflow problem, then the flap will look pale. Uh, there will not be a lot of blood inside of it, so it will be there will be less tissue turgor. Um, there will be less cap refill. It will be delayed. Uh, so those are the things that you would make you think there might be something wrong with the inflow, whether it be a clot, uh, a kink, uh, but either way, something that needs to be attended to quickly. Uh, when it's a venous problem, then you have a different clinical exam. You have a flap that looks essentially like someone's closing off uh, all the outflow. So it's uh, it's uh, purple. It's uh, the capri fill is extraordinarily brisk because there's nowhere for the blood to uh, to go. Um, and that therapy is a little bit different. It may be it may also be a clot. It may be a kink. But it, it could also be the inset. Uh, a variety of things that can uh, that can cause trouble. So the first thing to go, I mean, the first thing that you're going to see is clinical exam. Um, oftentimes we need objective data to, to help us make decisions of whether we need to do an intervention. And usually that requires um, listening to the Doppler flow. I mean, you're probably familiar with that. Uh, there may be uh, a perforator that is marked by either um, a suture or a, uh, a marker where you listen to the Doppler flow. And similar to you know, vascular surgery, you're listening for triphasic flow, or at least biphasic at the very least, uh, ideally triphasic flow. When you're listening to monophasic flow, that becomes more of an issue, uh, at least for the, the arterial side. Um, if you're lucky, you'll have a vein, a venous signal next to it, where it usually is more of a monophasic uh, signal. So we can either do that using... Um, uh, cutaneous Doppler signals using the pencil Dopplers, or there are also some uh, commercially available uh, implantable Dopplers, like the Cook Doppler, which uh, some surgeons use because it's 
Um, it kind of takes away the human element from it, <laughs> although it certainly has its pluses and minuses as well. And basically using, I always tell our residents, you know, always use your clinical exam first. Use your, your clinical acumen to, to see if, you know, that's going to be um, your first trigger rather than a, a signal going down or not. The signal going down, uh, it's helpful certainly at the junior years and, and it's certainly helpful for your nursing staff because it's an objective measure. But you have to correlate that with, if you have a great looking flap but the signal's down, it's probably going to be a mechanical error. Um, whether it be via the box not working to your implantable Doppler that got dislodged. You know, it could be a variety of things. But if your flap looks bad, and you, um, then that is going to tell you more than what your uh, your signal is going to tell you. Great, great. And I, I know uh, one of your expertise is uh, facial reanimation. Um, so are what's the time frame for reinnervating? Oh, I guess maybe describe to our listeners what that means. And then, uh, and is there a time frame that you like to have these nerves reinnervated? Sure. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a fun topic, but it could probably occupy an entire podcast uh, in and of itself. Um, as far as, uh, from the general surgery standpoint, you know, what you're likely going to see is, uh, you know, an acute patient where they have some type of traumatic, um, uh, you know, laceration or, uh, penetrating trauma where they may have a, uh, a facial nerve palsy. Now, if you remember from med school, um, the extracranial facial nerve has essentially five uh, branches. Um, and the ones that, uh, that you'll likely see an injury to are really the ones that have isolated terminal branches. And those are going to be your temporal branch or your, uh, or your marginal mandibular. Now, depending on where the laceration is, that you may see a whole... Uh, uh, entire facial palsy incorporating uh, all the smile muscles uh, as well. So the bottom line is it's based on based on a, a mechanism. For instance, if it's a, a laceration from uh, a knife or uh, some type of uh, sharp object, then you're more likely to have an actual um, laceration of uh, an injury to the facial nerve that needs to be repaired. Um, traditional dictum is you got to get to that within 72 hours. Otherwise, the distal aspect of the, uh, of the nerve uh, no longer uh, responds to stimulation, essentially making your repair really um, looking for a needle in a haystack. Um, that much more difficult. So for a practical sense, as a, uh, a trauma uh, you know, a first responder, if you do notice, you, know, you, have, you put the mechanism and you put the uh, clinical exam together, um, that's worthy of a call uh, to your consultant and, and really that patient needs to be in the OR relatively quickly if you're going to have any chance of doing of doing a repair or a uh, you know, or a uh, primary nerve graft. And, and where do you generally get the nerve grafts from if you do that? So in the face, it's um, you're depending on the situation. If you're using autologous nerve, uh, probably the best uh, nerve to use is straight auricular nerve. Um, because the, uh, the donor uh, morbidity is relatively small, it has a couple of branches, and you're already in the field. Um, there are companies that make a uh, cadaveric nerve uh, as well, which can be uh, utilized in relatively small gaps. Uh, so anywhere from one to three centimeters, um, it's it's uh, it's possible to use a cadaveric nerve and have a good outcome. Um, you, the workhorse that we have is uh, uh, the sural nerve, which is uh, an extremity nerve, and it's a sensory nerve. We use it for a variety of things, most prominently in uh, uh, facial reanimation 
cross-facing aircrafts and, and the like. The thing with that is it's a separate site. Um, it's also pretty thick and big nerf, so you don't necessarily use it for a primary nerf craft, um, uh, at least in the initial trauma setting. This may be a silly question, uh, but a sensory nerve, uh, it, you know, it seems to me that it has a kind of a different complete function, but is, I guess the, the motor neuron aspects of it are, are the same uh, to perform, you know, muscle reanimation and reinnervation. Yeah, yeah, that's a very astute point, and there's been a lot of deliberation on that. You, one was thinking using a motor nerve for a motor nerve and, and vice versa, sensory for sensory. You know, at least in, uh, in the face, is relatively straightforward for, for the most part. Um, motor nerves uh, are strictly motor nerves, and you don't have as many mixed-type nerves as you would in the extremities. Uh, but essentially what you're using each of these uh, nerve grafts for is as they are essentially scaffolds. Um, and they're a, way, a, a conduit to bring uh, point A to point, you know, to point B. And uh, uh, nerves act on just, they find a way to get, to get from one point over to the other. So it's essentially it's, it's guided tissue regeneration. I see. Um, and then you know, I have a kind of personal interest because I spent my research doing some uh, nerve work with uh, hind limbs of rats trying to improve functional outcomes in limb transplant. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah. the... Can you just describe the technique that you use for, um, you know, is it just a perineural, um, you know, uh, suturing that you do to approximate these nerves? And is, is there anything you do such as uh, stem cells or GCSF or anything to get these nerves to kind of reinnervate uh, more appropriately or, or faster? That's funny you uh, mentioned that. It's actually one of my research, uh, one of my research interests. Uh, I collaborate with um, Dr. Anne Lay, who's a, uh, the head of oral surgery here at uh, Penn, and she has um, isolated a, um, a line of uh, gingival mesenchymal stem cells, which are essentially neural crest cells that can be uh, that can be stimulated to go down a variety of pathways, but in particular, um, stimulated to go down to become neural stem cells, and uh, and we've been able to uh, uh, differentiate them into Schwann cells um, uh, as well as uh, neurons. So we've been utilizing that. Initially, we used a, uh, a sciatic uh, nerve crush injury model uh, to demonstrate that uh, using these neuro, uh, well, both the GMSCs as well as the, uh, the neural stem cells can, uh, can augment recovery. And now we're using it in a, an actual facial nerve transaction model in a rat. Wow. So, you know, there's, we, there's a lot of, uh, I think, a lot of excitement as far as uh, how can we how can we do better than our current practices? Because at the end of the day, um, using a uh, cadaveric nerve as a scaffold is a way to get some regeneration, but it's it clearly it's not as good as uh, as you know, the, the uninjured nerve. Um, similarly, using a, a nerve graft uh, is essentially the gold standard that we have now, but at, at the same time, it comes with the cost of donor morbidity and a secondary surgical site. So there's got to be a better way. So uh, a few of the things that we are investigating is, you know, is the combination of using a scaffold or using a, uh, a tube in order to encourage axonal growth without uh, migration. Um, as far as the logistics of how you put them together, yeah, you know, it, I don't think it makes that much of a difference. You really just have to put them in the vicinity of each other and line them up, whether it be um, with micro sutures. Uh, just going to the epineurium, which is the way I certainly uh, was trained. Or uh, when I was in Canada, we started just using Tissio uh, to put oh, end-to-end. Wow. 
you know, uh, and to create essentially a fibrin. Uh, so no sutures at all. Fibrin plant. No sutures at all. Wow. Uh, and you know what? There were no no real differences. I think huh. general principle: if you want less, is more. You don't want to put uh, a million sutures in there because of potential scar formation. Mm-hmm. Wow, very interesting. Um, and then, if a patient it, it gets to you too late and they've already had you know a facial nerve paralysis for whatever reason, there are uh, options for um, kind of reanimation that's not uh, nerve related, correct? Like suspension or something like that. Right. I mean, yeah, the way you want to think about it is, is it really your, uh, your algorithm is going to change depending on how, how long it's been since the injury and the expectation for recovery. So if from, a, uh, from an acute standpoint, think of it as an either acute or chronic, uh, from an acute standpoint, if you expect there to be some recovery, you, want there, um, you put it in the category of you expect it to have a full recovery, in which case you get EMGs. Or do you expect it to have uh, partial or no recovery? Uh, in which case, you need to have some type of intervention because, at the end of the day, if a, if a muscle is not innervated, it's basically uh, it basically uh, shrinks and uh, and becomes non-functional. So the concept of uh, a neurotization or a babysitter type of uh, function uh, has been put forth and it's been around for several decades. Um, essentially, using uh, using a uh, close by nerve, which doesn't exactly do what uh, the native nerve function does, but at least it gives it a uh, a way to innervate the muscle and and uh, prevent uh, atrophy. So, uh, Julius Herzis is probably the most uh, well known plastic surgeon who publicized that using using the hypoglossal nerve, or at least a portion of it, huh. to uh, um, to directly neurotize um, your your mimetic muscles or your smile muscles. Basically, as a babysitter, keeping the girth and uh, preventing atrophy of those muscles um, while you wait for a secondary definitive uh, thing to occur, uh, which is more natural. For instance, either using a cross-face type of nerve graft um, or you uh, use a long nerve graft, use the sural nerve from the working side, which, uh, which is the facial nerve on the other side, coming all the way across and, and directly neurotizing those, uh, those muscles. Or uh, if it's a chronic patient and you need to do uh, a replacement type of uh, therapy, then you actually have to bring in a new piece of muscle. And uh, cl- classically, it's been um, a, some, uh, something called a two-stage uh, procedure where it's the first stage is using a cross-face nerve graft, a thermal nerve, up to about 30 centimeters um, collapsing it to one of the uh, the normal facial nerves uh, that that uh, uh, commands a smile, usually a, one of the buccal or uh, zygomatic branches, um, and then bringing it across the face, uh, either on the upper lip, uh, most commonly, or sometimes underneath the chin, and just waiting uh, nine months to a year and following mm-hmm. a Tunnel sign, just waiting, waiting for it to grow across. Because you know, if you remember from the abscites, nerve takes about a millimeter, grows at about <laughs> a millimeter a day. Yep. So if you follow it along, by the time the uh, nerve ending gets across um, uh, across the face, it's ready for the second stage, which is uh, most commonly uh, used using a uh, gracilis muscle, which is uh, one of your um, adduct, excuse me adduction muscles of the uh, of the thigh, uh, which also has a, a good pedicle as well as 
uh, its own motor nerve, the obturator nerve. So basically, you bring that piece of muscle up to the face. Um, you hook up the, uh, the vessels to the facial vessels and so that you, you have a blood supply, and then you hook up the obturator nerve to the, uh, the cross-face nerve graft, and then you wait uh, a few months until you get some function. And basically, uh, the most elegant solution to unilateral facial palsy is you know, a true spontaneous smile is uh, a signal through the facial nerve on the working side going across the face and getting to the, your uh, newly transplanted gracilis muscle to contract at the same time. So you really get through spontaneity. Wow. Now, it's, you know, there's pluses and minuses to that. It's, um, it's a two-stage procedure over the course of uh, you know, a year plus to get your results. And a lot of things can, can go wrong in, in not optimizing your results. It is microsurgery, so you have the inherent risk of potential, uh, you know, thromboses and things of your, of your flap. Um, you know, microsurgery requires the use of more specific technical skills. You're basically sewing vessels which are between 1.5 and 2.5 uh, millimeters. And you are using, you know, um, 9 Nylon, so really a fourth to fifth the size of a human hair. So mm-hmm. it's, there are a lot of things that can go wrong. You're also dependent on the, the physiology of the flap. you got to get this thing to survive. So a lot can go in with not optimizing that, but, you know, it's, um, it works incredibly well uh, in, uh, in centers that do a fair amount of it, and, you know, I think you get a great result from it. One of the things that I've um, recently started doing and what's more popular in Europe is uh, something called a lengthening temporalis myoplasty. And it was uh, popularized by a surgeon named Daniel Labbe out of uh, Cannes in, in France. And the idea with that is that uh, you are using your temporalis muscle and you're keeping it essentially still anatomic in the sense that it's, it's orthotopic. But you're taking the, uh, the distal tendon, uh, which normally attaches to your coronoid process of your mandible, Mm-hmm. And basically detaching it from there and through a variety of maneuvers, stretching it to, uh, to your nasal labial fold. So essentially creating this vector, this pole, where initially when you're biting down, you're getting this pole of the, uh, of the nasal labial fold. And, and it's, it's really an incredibly, uh, incredibly good-looking smile. Wow. And do you have to go um, through like occupational therapy to learn how to smile or is it natural? Ab- absolutely. You're absolutely right. That's, uh, you hit the nail on the head. You're, you're, the surgeon is only as good as their occupational therapist as well as how much the patient uh, uh, puts into their therapy. So there are essentially three phases. Uh, you know, the first phase is just putting uh, that, uh, that muscle down and, and letting things heal, which takes about three weeks or so because you don't want the, uh, your tendinous insertion to, uh, to be hit. Uh, then once you start therapy, then it goes from um, clenching down to get that muscle to contract to overall to slowly becoming uh, more and more of a spontaneous smile where, where patients are able to actually contract the muscle without biting down just by thinking about it. It's really incredible, hmm. the, uh, the brain plasticity, and particularly in kids. They pick it up uh, pick it up in a way that adults just do not. So we've uh, done it as young as uh, six years old, and they, these kids are doing great. It's really incredible. Wow. Great. Great. Thank you. Um, and I know that you uh, 
have a, a passion for uh, international missions, especially uh, regarding facial plastics and uh, uh, something we've uh, we've actually had a couple podcasts on global health with uh, Dr. John Miera of the Harvard. Um, oh yeah, global health, and and we've talked a lot about uh, that. And I was hoping you could give us uh, your perspective on working with Operation Smile, um, and especially I'd like to hear uh, you know who you choose for surgery, um, sort of the ethics behind it, and like maybe cases that you don't take on because of the the fact that it's in a foreign country and some of the challenges you face, and uh, and and the success stories that you have uh, doing these missions abroad. Well, yeah. Thanks for asking. That's a great. That's a great question. I'll tell you uh, right now. Uh, one of really, I think for me personally, one of the most life-changing events uh, that has affected my entire career was going on a mission as a as a medical student. So I, I'm of Vietnamese origin, um, first generation, um, first generation uh, immigrant, and as a medical student, uh, I went back as a fourth year uh, to Vietnam, and uh, I'm essentially it was a pediatric medical mission, but there's a cleft component to it. So this is uh, about three hours west of Hanoi, and this is, you know, early 2000s, and still not a lot of development in Vietnam at the time. And I remember it was myself and a, an older uh, plastic surgeon who had just retired uh, doing these clefts, and he was uh, a surgeon from New York, didn't speak to me, so I essentially acted as, uh, as a translator. And, uh, you know, it takes away... Uh, all the aspects of, of medicine, of modern medicine and, uh, that we do in the States uh, that may be cumbersome and gets you to its, to its true essence of being able to help, uh, help someone with, with a skill set. So uh, it is extraordinarily powerful uh, for me to see as a student, uh, you know, being able to see, you know, families who had walked, uh, you know, days just to get, uh, to get care. Uh, and it was, it really left a deep impression on me. So throughout residency and, and fellowship uh, and into practice, uh, I've made it a big com- part of continuing to uh, to participate. Now, as far as uh, uh, the idea or the question of who do you go with, what do you do? There's there's a lot of discussion and criticism about various organizations. I think the biggest criticism, particularly in plastic surgery, is that you know a lot of places don't want surgeons who don't normally do these kinds of things to come and practice mm-hmm. on, uh, you know, on their children right. or their patients, which you, which you can certainly understand. Um, that there are a few models of, uh, uh, various organizations from, uh, historically it was a parachuting model where organizations would have, uh, medical professionals from, um, Western countries come in, do much cases and leave without follow-up or uh, really any idea of what happens to these patients afterwards. And uh, as you can imagine, there's a lot of criticism with that, with that model because it really is not a, a sustainable model. Um, conversely, uh, there's the other model of uh, creating sustainability where uh, organizations put in funding to helping local physicians um, create uh, centers where they can continue uh, to do their work and, and be able to fund these local doctors, um, which is kind of the idea of uh, teaching a, uh, a person how to fish. Right. Um, and there, there are certainly pluses and minuses of that model as well, because without supervision, hard to say where all the money goes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think a lot of organizations are coming more towards this 
uh, more of a combined type model where uh, establishing a center, um, establishing a center using the funds of the organization, but integrating kind of the uh, the Western or the uh, uh, Western physicians coming in to help teach and basically help uh, uh, supervise in the beginning um, and initiate um, these centers, but with the idea that ultimately it becomes a self-sustaining uh, self-sustaining uh, uh, entity. And you know there have been a few um, there have been a few uh, big successes in that, and I think I'll smile. Uh, it's one of the organizations that I, I volunteer with and probably the one I volunteer with the most. You know, they have a long history. Um, it's actually the 35th anniversary this year. Um, and they are uh, very well connected and very, um, you know, it's, it's very well thought out. And I think they've been on the forefront of establishing uh, uh, markers for safety and, and uh, uh, being able to do things right. Um one reason I really like working with them is because they really do want to do things right. And they uh, are very critical about, uh, about past successes and also past failures and how to do things better. Um, so, you know, international medicine, I think is, is wonderful. And for all uh, residents out there, I strongly, strongly encourage uh, you to have that as a component of your training because it is such a unique, uh, unique, uh, experience that will very much leave an impact on you and and your um, how you're going to practice. Well, even if it's a short experience, it is uh, something that, uh, that will, you'll cherish uh, throughout your career. Great. That is fantastic. And uh, I know many of the residents out there um, are, are very interested in this and we love hearing about that and sort of the challenges that you do face. Um, well, uh, Dr. Wynn, we can't thank you enough for joining us behind the knife and being our first uh, plastic surgery representative. And uh, I'm sure all of our uh, general surgeons will uh, find this encouraging and exciting. And uh, hopefully uh, a few of them will be uh, sparked uh, to come join you in the plastic surgery field. So thank you for joining us on Behind the Knife. For my pleasure there, Kevin. And uh, I hope you guys uh, get a little idea of what plastic surgery is. It's certainly uh, I didn't really know when I was a uh, general surgeon, and I think it has a lot to offer. Thank you again. Until next time, dominate the day.